0: Children need to see white allies and black disruptors. We need both. You can't just have one because that just gives a lopsided understanding of the breadth of the issue that we're all under, the oppression that we're all under, which is white supremacy, and that it does fuck us all. It impacts all of us.
1: Welcome fam, this is Courtney Russell Jr. and I'm here with my co-host Emily Brocker.
2: Welcome to Humanize.
1: We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences.
2: We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego.
1: The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work y'all, let's get it. Hey, it's another beautiful day in whatever neighborhood you're in. This is Humanize, the podcast, the phenomenon, and we're here with the beautiful Courtney Napier. And hopefully I said that name right. Don't don't beat me up, Black woman. I
0: said it beautifully.
1: Uh, thank you. Okay, cool. Let's get to it. Um, we're so happy <laughs> and so blessed. And um, thank you for being here with us today. Emily and I really appreciate you.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Emily and Courtney. Yeah. Um, I'm stoked. I'm, I'm so stoked to be here. Is your morning going okay so
2: far? Before we're we crashing it and you're you're, <laughs> you're yeah, bringing ourselves yeah. into yeah, it, it's going okay.
0: <laughs> I'm excited <laughs> to it I, work. I, I, it's, I'm making it work. I got myself together. I was I I emailed Emily last minute like I need ten minutes. Just give me ten minutes.
1: <laughs> Yo, you, <laughs> you're 10 mom. more minutes. Yeah.
2: You got good, your so. T-shirt on. Can you tell the listeners about your T-shirt? What does your T-shirt say?
0: Oh man, so um, this is like my armor. It has a bunch of really amazing black writers, starting with Phyllis Wheatley, all the way down to Paul um, Dunbar, mm. and so many great folks in the middle. I actually I had an idea that I want to do this for like all like Raleigh-based or North Carolina-based writers and mm. um, authors. You know.
2: I gotta have to say Courtney N and Courtney R today, that I guess. Word. Is that yeah. is that the best? Yeah. Um, when Courtney R and I started working on this podcast and and started thinking about how we're gonna work together, one of the things that we said is, and we we haven't done this, but is is to say, like at the beginning of every podcast, we should welcome our ancestors into this room because Ooh. we yeah. don't we don't have this conversation without all of those ancestors that came before us and so it was such a beautiful reminder your t-shirt you know representing kind of that feeling of like we're standing on the shoulders of of what's happened and it's such a relevant conversation because you know we get kickback sometimes on on our podcast of like well my you know from white folks like my ancestors weren't here during slavery. This isn't relevant to me, you know, and it's like this. Were they? Are you sure about that? <laughs> the The sea of history that we live in touches us all and uh, we don't do a very good job honoring that in our culture, I don't think.
0: It Well, yeah, it's it's hard to do when you feel like your your heritage, your lineage is only one-sided, right? And I'm, we're going to talk about that more later, but I can imagine as a white person that looking behind you is a very complicated thing. So I can understand. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that kind of brings us into what we're going to talk to you today about, which is how white supremacy fucks us all. It do. It (laughs) It does. So let me tell you all our listeners about Courtney. Um, So Courtney, Courtney Napier is a a writer, journalist, a gatherer, and anti-racism coach from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, So she's written for a whole slew of different national outlets, including News One and Indie Week. She's also the founder of Black Oak Society, which is a collective of Black creatives in the greater Raleigh area. Um, And they have a flagship publication, the BOS, Black Oak Society Magazine, which is a literary magazine focused on giving Black Raleigh... Uh, her flowers now yes. an expression that I just learned <laughs> <laughs> just now Yeah. um so kind of celebration yeah absolutely like yeah celebration, celebration in the honor
0: moment? yeah reverence commemoration awesome. yeah I love that and
2: so yeah I reached out to Courtney over Instagram creeping her creeping her account basically um <laughs> uh, <laughs> As I do hunting around for amazing people. Um, And she has a a course that she's running, an anti-racism course coming up. She's actually going to be running um, the next session of it on June 25th and 26th. We're going to talk more about that soon. It's called Know Better, Do Better, The Legacy of White Allyship. And so Courtney... As I've explored more about this and she's responded to my creeper ship of like, come talk to us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, I, I would just love to learn more about your path, your journey, how it, how it brought you, you know, eventually to be running this course and grounding this course in this concept of how white supremacy Screws us all. Mm-hmm. I'm not a swearer. <laughs> I can't keep, keep oh, swearing. How it fucks us all. Um, <laughs> we'll take care of it for you. Don't worry. <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, tell us about, tell us about you. So I have, I, I think I have a interesting story um, because I was raised in a conservative black household. Hmm. So a little bit different, which I, I guess in the South is not as different as I would, you know, expect maybe in other places. But um, yeah, my dad um, has a background in the military. He was a, he was a Marine Corps officer, once a Marine, always a Marine. So he still, you know, carries that with pride. And, um, and my mom is not from a conservative family, but you know, it's, is is very um, religious. She's, a, she's, they're both deep Christian, you know, people on a journey of questioning, but that's, later, but they are, um, but yeah, that's what, that's the kind of situation we were raised in. And we were also, my dad being, a kind of a corporate guy growing up, we were raised in predominantly white spaces, like all over. And so, yeah, we, we, I had a really interesting childhood from that perspective and so I like to tell people to give them an idea of just how conservative I was that like the only president I've ever canvassed for like on door to door was George Bush in 2004 Oh, I remember that canvassing. Yeah, but right. But I I might have been on the other side. <laughs> I, I I would imagine and if I could go back in time, I would be as well. But that <laughs> that's my reality. That's where I was. I'd like to, yeah. you know, put that stuff out up front just to let people know about my journey, but um fast forward a few years after leaving Raleigh, returning to Raleigh, married, you know, working my 9 to 5. And I'm sitting in the car and it's 2012 and I hear about Trayvon Martin's murder. Mm.
2: Hmm.
0: And I'm, you know, back in my hometown, seeing my family all the time. I'm the oldest of six siblings and I have two brothers that were about um, his age, a little younger. And because we grew up in these spaces, it was like, Hearing something that could very, very likely happen to my family—I mm-hmm. mean, just mm-hmm. a- any given weekend—they were in neighborhoods like that. Yeah, you know. And so, it was a very jarring, very shocking. I like to describe it as kind of like the the crack in the veneer, like the pebble that flies up into your windshield, kind of moment. And um, it it led to a lot of questioning. And then um, about a year or so later my husband and I decided to leave our church. Uh, We were leading worship at a predominantly white evangelical church. Um, We left and then we moved away and we were super broke. And so really all we had to do was read. um read books he was working um doubles at a restaurant and i'm home still healing up i had heart surgery in between there and so i'm healing up on the couch reading and reading and reading and listening to npr Mm. and democracy now and becoming (laughs) becoming (laughs) radicalized basically (laughs) (laughs) but really like the first book i picked up was frederick Douglass's slave narrative and it hit me so hard. His story hit me hard. But what really, really got me was the piece in the back that dealt with the um, American Christianity, uh-huh. that essay in the back of his narrative. And it just kind of, I felt so seen and validated more than I had ever felt in my l- whole life. And these stories, this reading, these narratives of hearing about my people from their mouths as opposed to the predominantly white like civics classes i had been experiencing growing up i i saw myself like i saw the breadth of what it meant to be black kind of for the first time and um it it did it, it it completely changed me um all those stereotypes i'd grown up with that i internalized were uprooted because of these stories and so flash way forward I'm now, you know, mother of two. I start writing. I'm still reading, still, you know, doing all this studying. All this stuff is just so interesting to me. It, like, also kind of ignited a, a, a passion in me for story and narrative and writing, especially Tenehase Coates' case for reparations. Oh my gosh, like that. I was like, a journalist wrote this? Like, this is amazing. And so I became a journalist in, in 2019. And then you know, in the middle of of the Trump era, I'm like, I have to do something. Like, I have to do something, like, for my kids. Like, I can't just let them. <laughs> I we this can't be forever. And so I start working with a uh, activist or- organization here in Raleigh, that kind of propels me into my journalism career, actually. And then, flash forward, I started anti racism coaching in 2020. And then um, Dante Wright was murdered uh, a few months ago. And at that point in my journey, I was just tired of being paralyzed by the violence that had been happening. I don't know if that mm-hmm. makes sense, but like every time mm-hmm. I would read the news, it was just it's it, terrifying. It's terrifying. It like I felt like something. Like literally, life in me was leaving. Like it just felt so devastating every single time. And when this one happened, for whatever reason, I was just like, I can't, I I can't be in that space again. Like I can't be paralyzed by this because it, it was it, it's an act of terror, and acts of terror are meant to terrorize and freeze people. And there's, you know, Um, right. And so um, I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm rejecting that posture. What can be done? And I thought about my story. I thought about how, how reconnecting to my history and the history of my ancestors, the real history, not the whitewashed history that I experienced in school was so inspiring and empowering for me. And, um, while I was reading um, Angela Davis's *Gender, Race, and Class*, I was introduced to the Grimke sisters, who were white women raised, born and raised in the antebellum South in South Carolina. Their father was a slaveholder and a very prominent man in their in their community, and yet they grew up with a detest for slavery. And they began speaking out as young women, young white women in the antebellum South from their father's home against slavery. And it shocked me. First of all, I didn't know Angela Davis even like (laughs) took the time to write about white people. So that was eye opening, especially like, you know, quote unquote, good white people. But then it just made me curious. I'm like, well, how many other Grimke sisters are there out there?
2: Now the Grimke sisters, I think the oldest one was the one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg quoted, saying, "Just take your knees off our necks" or something. It was like compellingly relevant yeah. to Floyd. And so, yeah, very, very interesting story. Oh those, my gosh, those sisters, they yeah. are because mm-hmm.
0: they're just so fierce. It wasn't like a gentle. It wasn't you know a Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, imagine story. in that time. Yeah, it was like fuck all y'all. This is completely wrong. And they were very full-throated to the point where they just got kicked out wherever they went. They got kicked out by the Quakers. They got kicked out by the Presbyterians. They got kicked out by the suffragettes because they were just, they didn't take any shit from anyone. And so I was just so compelled by that. I'm like, I wonder how many white people know about the Grimke sisters. I wonder how many white people know about, you know, um, Rabbi Franz who spoke at the March for Freedom and Jobs in 1963. He was a speaker before Martin Luther King. I wonder if anybody knows about him.
2: I hadn't heard about him.
0: And and I realized, yeah, exactly. You don't. And that, you know, I know this was a long explanation, but that. No perfect. Thank you. That is what really just opened my eyes to think of like, you know, Beverly Tatum talks about how children need to see white allies and black disruptors. We need Mm -hmm. both. You can't Mm -hmm. just have one because that just gives a lopsided understanding of the breadth of the issue that we're all under, the oppression that we're all under, which is white supremacy and that it does fuck us all. It impacts all of us. And so when we get a narrative that only the most impacted people care about, you know, the civil rights movement, or it was only, you know, LGBTQIA plus folks that cared about the gay rights movement, or it's only women that cared about the feminist movement or the suffrage movement. All of those are lies, first of all. But even more, it says that like, oh, if I'm not the most impacted, then it's not for me to care enough to do anything about. hmm. And that message is very powerful in favor of white supremacy, right? Because, you know, collectivism is what makes big things happen. So if you've already convinced half or the majority of the population that they are not to be involved, then what can happen is automatically smaller and smaller and smaller. It can still be impactful, but it is smaller and it does make things harder. But besides all that, it's just historically inaccurate. And that's the part that got to me is like, it's historically inaccurate to say that white people have not been at the table the entire time, not at the head of the table, which is also an important point to make, but they've always been there. You've always been there. And I, I, I took the leap of faith that maybe creating a class, creating a workshop that communicates that truth might help folks get out of this white folks get out of this rut, this energy loss that happens after an act of terror to the Black community, and they get really intensely riled up, like, yes, 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 let's do something. And then, you know, less than six months later, the fire's gone.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I And how, I'm curious to hear, like, I think that this is a, a topic that needs to be explored a lot a lot more and a lot more publicly. Like how how white supremacy affects everyone. Cause I do, I do feel and I can feel it in myself, this like this sense of if you orient to this work as like I am I'm doing this for someone else because like I feel like I you know I feel compassion and you know that compassion fatigue just runs out because that's what it does. So yeah. Can you just see from your experience, from history, from your courses, like how, how does it impact, how does white supremacy impact white people?
0: Yeah. Well, um, a really interesting thing happened during the last workshop where I like to have a panel of folks that I consider great allies of today, just to kind of talk about their own journeys Mm -hmm. And so I had two dear friends that were on this panel and we were kind of talking about, you know, their background and their story a lot like this. And um, one of my friends is um, a lesbian and the other one is neurodivergent. You know, he's an artist. He's, you know, they're both amazing people. And part of their story was realizing that the white supremacist, you know, structures around them did not have... a space for their whole identity. And that's one of the ways that I like to illustrate the, you know, how stifling white supremacy is. It's because in white supremacy, there's only space for whiteness. And so if you're, and and white maleness, because that is seen as like the essentially the the purest form of Hmm, white supremacy as being a white, (laughs) cis, wealthy christian male
2: tall mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. of those
0: things and so if you don't fit that very very narrow con- concept of of what it means to be like good or american or best or whatever then you have to cut off the other parts of your identity in order to fit into that space does that make sense and so they got that from an early age because we all do, because, you know, kids aren't clueless to what's going on around them. They understand what it takes to fit in. hmm And so one of my friends, you know, because her parents were lesbians and the messages that she was receiving was homosexual or queer parents raise bad, damaged children you know, and part of being bad and damaged is also becoming queer, like your queer parents. Hmm. Then she was like, well, I'm determined to be a good, you know, straight kid to, in defense of the goodness of my parents. Uh But it would, that was a white supremacist you know, message. And so she was trying to conform to that ideal in order to Protect her family as a child, you know, and then you have my other friend who is neurodivergent and and likes to stir and needs, you know, has this energy and the spaces he was in the classrooms he was in, it was like, sit down, be quiet, you know, conform, stay in your place. And that was not him. That was not who he was born to be. But even as a child, he knew that he wasn't him, the complete him. His full identity was not welcome, even as a white little boy, even as a straight white little boy, a straight white little boy with a neurodivergent mind was not welcome. And so he, you know, and so he created this, you know, almost like a defiance. That was his reaction was like, well, screw all of that. Then I'm just going to be myself. You know, this is all bullshit. But I think that's part of it. Right. Is that there's not room. It's not like, you know any old white person is okay. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. poor white people are a problem. Gay white people are a problem. Now at this point, uh, liberal or leftist white people are a problem. (laughs) Always white people who honor and join the fight against white supremacy and for collective liberation have always been a problem. You know, white people who love a person of color is often a problem. And so I, and so I think that's, you know, it's not just white supremacy, like all white people. Yes, if you have white skin, you do have a set of privileges, but oftentimes that's where it stops. That's where it starts and stops. And so if beneath that skin, you are literally anybody else besides white, male, cis, you know, pet, rich, Christian, neurotypical, (laughs) able-bodied there's you know then something you got to give something up yeah to join the party and that's part of how it fucks us all and there's more but that's definitely I think a big part of it
2: Mm -hmm.
1: wow I'm not gonna lie I need to um I need for you to sign me up for your course uh, (laughs) I need to be in attendance for that thing because that's it sounds it sounds amazing I appreciate the work you're doing um a lot came up for me as you spoke. You know, um, thinking about comfort, safety. Emily and I uh, speak a lot about unsafe and the, and the the differences between unsafe and uncomfortable, and how it is so necessary to be. And I mean, I could be that could be pushed back, obviously, but I think you have to be uncomfortable for freedom to occur. There is never a time where. You can just relax, whether you're white or black, and this ties into what you're talking about about white supremacy, fucking everyone, where you can say, I believe in freedom. I believe in equality. However, I think what's happening over there is not affecting me, so I'm going to not do as much as I can do and be safe because playing it safe is probably more destructive than actually being the, the whole villain because you are you're actually you're you're turning a blind eye to an issue and you're being low key dishonest, you know what I mean and so i i i I think if you are the person that is out there being the most racist um most problematic, at least you are showing individuals exactly who you are, and so people can protect themselves in a sense from you. However, if you are not speaking your truth and hiding from facts and allowing certain things to go on, you're doing it in, in, in my opinion, more harm. Uh, and so um, I appreciate, I appreciate what you're talking about. And also, I think this work that we do has to be selfish. You have to you, you can't think about it as I'm doing something to help someone else." I'm doing this work to help me. As a, civ- as a civil activist myself and an advocate, people always ask me, oh, you love the community. Um, I come from this, you know, I come from poverty and it's less about them and it's more about their redemption and the, the work that I have to do so that I can leave this world a better man than I was when I was here occupying space and damaging um, my community, you know, and so I believe selfishness is always branded as this horrible thing that you should never do. It goes in any aspect. When you're a businessman, you better be selfish. When you're married, you better be selfish. When you're, when you're doing DEI work, you have to be selfish because if you're not taking care of you, if you don't have self-love, I, don't, I can't love someone else in hopes that, that the love is going to drip back on me. And now all of a sudden, I love my community now. You know, and so I, I, I really appreciate just just how you're saying it. it fucks everyone because I think selfish work is purposeful work which will lead to freedom at the end of the day for us all. So so yeah. thank you.
0: Oh my gosh, you said so much there. Okay, so there's definitely a Courtney connection happening because this has been the conversation for the past like twelve hours. Mm-hmm. Mm. Is this idea of self? So I was on the phone with a good, good, good friend. And this is what we were talking about because, okay, this is a moment where Emily just hold on to the reins because I feel like I'm going to (laughs) bounce around a little bit with this thought because it's very new. I'm right here. I'll bring us back. I'll bring us back. Thank you so much. So (laughs) it's very new, but um, where to start? So I, I was on the phone last night with a really good friend and we were talking about. Um, a little bit of what we, me and y'all were talking about on Tuesday for our pre-interview when we tapped into this idea of like to the collective yes. Mm. Um, and so, and to kind of give a little bit of background, something that is very much a part of the Black experience is understanding that when we say yes or no to an opportunity or a situation, our yes is oftentimes a reflection of thinking about the people that are coming before us. So like the future generations and also thinking about our elders, like making our elders proud. So it's not just like this individual, I want to do this thing. I don't want to do this thing. I want to be treated this way. I don't want to be treated this way. It's more of like, you know, will I come home from this? When you think about like a police stop, you know, like you're being treated like less than human, but, will I come, you know, how can I make it home to my family from the situation versus how can I make my ancestors proud based on all the work they did for me to get me here? It's a, it's a very, it's a very tense, like moment on a regular basis. This is what we're experiencing when we say yes or no. And so we were talking about that. And then she said, but you know what, like some of these things we really just got to do for ourselves. Like there has to be, there has to be things that we just do for ourselves. And, you know, I had a little moment of like internal resistance, like does there really like, because it does feel good sometimes to do it right. But then I think about all the times where it's like a little bit unnecessary, you know, like an opportunity someone asks you to be on a board or on a panel or especially when they're asking to do something that's time consuming and for free (laughs) yeah but you're like oh but you know maybe i'll make a i'll make some room for the next black person behind me if i say yes to this it's like but uh, the, the black person shouldn't be there if they want them to do stuff for free you know, or if they, if they're, if this is a kind of an inconsequential decision or something like that. And so sometimes we do have to think about like, is this really going to serve me? Is this, is, you know, have that selfish moment, like you were talking about Courtney. And, and so, um, on that, I was talking to my husband because I love Audre Lord. Audre Lord is, I think one of the ancestors on my shirt right now. And I don't know if you all have read her essay on the erotic, understanding the power of the erotic, the power of pleasure. And she talks about how, you know, white supremacy has constricted our idea of pleasure and idea of the erotic to something sexual, Mm -hmm. but it's so much more than that. It's like another sense. It's like another way of like understanding the world around us. Like it's another way to make a decision. And I'm like, Hmm, well, I'm, and and my husband had explained something to me and he used the word pleasure in it saying this expert was talking about like how this generation is like pleasure driven. The the Z generation is pleasure driven. But his connotation, this expert's connotation of pleasure was negative. And so I'm listening to my husband explain this to me and I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about because it's because in my paradigm has already shifted to the audra lord, like pleasure is a positive thing. It's like an important aspect of life. But this person's, you know, bias is that pleasure is negative. And so he's building the case against this next generation and why they are, you know.
2: And that's like kind of like a puritanical Christian notion, right? is like
0: outcast the pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. The body Mm -hmm. is, is bad. The body is Is evil. evil. So anything, Mm -hmm. any type of like information that comes straight from your body is not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. and so just kind of like, I know this is all over the place, but what I was saying is like, you know, I, I think about the golden rule, like of loving your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, Ooh, so conscience is how we love our neighbor right like conscience is what drives us to do good for other people like we see a, a situation where somebody's being mistreated and it's our conscience it's like we got to intervene like we got to help this person but then there's also pleasure right and pleasure asks you know well it, it, am I safe like am I going to get a shot if I intervene in this thing you know like is my body okay And that, that Bible verse, that golden rule has both like loving your neighbor as yourself. And so pleasure and conscience are supposed to be like, it's like two sides of one coin. It's like, when you make a decision, make it in terms of pleasure and conscience, you know, you have to, you measure both and not everything. It doesn't mean everything's going to feel good all the time, but it's something to always consider. It's a way to always make that choice. So like Courtney, when you're like, It has to be selfish, too. We have to start embodying, like, the way, the fuckery of white supremacy. We can't, like, when we pluck ourselves outside of it, when white folks pluck themselves outside of it, then it only becomes about conscience. And they never really grasp, you know, the pleasure of resisting oppression, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yes. Not realizing they're oppressed. I
2: feel like one thing I've really grappled with in white supremacy is this, like... Is this overriding culture? And I come from the Northeast, so I've come from like a very academically oriented world, but I feel like white supremacy's favorite way of knowing is through the mind and it with like total disregard to the body. And we see that in our education system, right? Is like – No course on like tune into your body, you know, like even sex courses, like make a right decision for to protect yourself or whatever that is. It's not like check in with yourself, like what does your body feel? So it's disregarded that way of knowing. And I think that that can because we're such a fast paced culture and we're just going so fast that as we're making decisions about how how to spend the day, what are my interests, what are, I mean, what another thing white supremacy does, I feel like, is cuts off part of our soul, Mm. right? Mm. Is like how I just read a great article that I can link to in the notes about white beloved hashtag Black Lives Matter around like the soul death that has to happen Mm. if you're gonna teach your children not to love and respect every person oh. around you, you know? And I think if we slow down enough, we can feel that. But our culture is so fast-paced, it's like just keep riding on the mind, keep riding on those things that eventually gets us to this place where like, what has happened to our culture? Like we're so disoriented and confused that if it takes like a meditation retreat to like slow down and like feel all of that. The ways of knowing, of the, I mean, we always talk about how brilliant white supremacy is, you know, like how it constantly funnels into itself, cuts us off from the parts of ourselves that would like wake up from realizing how like, you know, how violent it is to every single person.
1: Something came up for me right then when you said, um, Emily, wake up. The thing about, in my mind, thinking about white supremacy is a, a very... For for individuals that is benefiting, it's a great bedtime story. You know what I mean? It it, it makes you feel comfortable. It, it makes you feel good. And so, if you you know, sometimes you're sleeping and somebody sits on the edge of the bed, or or something happens, it's kind of jarring. That is DEI work. That is the uncomfortability of a time now that we're living in. You know what I mean? A reality. And so. The dream of white supremacy um, being this great thing um, that's going to, to that sets the mold for every interaction, you know, is it's being disrupted by if you are a white supremacist, the nightmare of inclusion, the nightmare of equality, the nightmare of equity, you know, and so I, I that is it's so brilliant as you said, the dream, you know, waking up from um, this slumber. And even if you were enslaved, you were, part, you were a part of a dream. Even if you were individuals who were um, poked and prodded and exploited in the medical system, you were a part of a dream. A dream for a better world, you were just a casualty. You were just, you were just collateral. You, know, you just had to happen to make it. You know, And people of color, we, sometimes we get to a place where, you know what, this is the norm. We have Stockholm Syndrome. You know, we like, you know what? It's best for me to continue down this road because whether you want to admit it or not, individuals know what's best for me and my body when it comes to pleasure and it comes to pain and it comes to suffering. So even though I'm suffering, the alternative is worse. You know, even though my family is not, we're living in poverty, someone else is doing bad. So the illusion of like, and the brilliance again of white supremacy is we know what's going on for you, and if you continue to follow us, even through this pain, even through your family's trauma, we got you. It's just, it's just, just like even in, in, in employment, women get paid less. Why? Because men know what we got to do. We take care of the home, so y'all don't y'all don't need that much money. We got you. You know what I'm saying? So why we. Uh, it is like everything is like a perfect dream you got a person playing sports making 300 million dollars a year when you have a teacher making thirty thousand dollars a year but a teacher taught the person to read right you got a doctor who's making millions upon millions but then the professor who taught him medicine is getting like it's a backward system because individuals who set it up were brilliant enough to know trust me i take you where you got to go if you just shut the fuck up i got you you know, and so it's it's so, and so in order to, we said this before, Emily. we said, and Cody, please tell me if you agree with this, like in order for us to break this paradigm of white supremacy being what's right, we have to be as audacious or even more because of the head start that white, the system of white supremacy has had. So we got to be such a disruptor that it costs, it may cost us our life and me and Emily go back and forth. With this, like, am I ready to fucking lay my life down for this? You know, am I ready to put it all on the line? And, and, and for me, I can't speak for anyone else. For me, I mean, that's not even a question. I just make you. I just make you on Tuesday, Courtney. Would I die for you? Quick. I don't. I don't have to know you. Would I die for Emily? Not even a question. You know, it's not. It. 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 it how I'm set up now. I have sacrificed so much in my life that up to this point, right now, there's nothing I wouldn't do. To, to throw a pebble into the veneer of white supremacy to, 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 to cause that crack so that someone could break that shit and we could all walk through and we could, on the other side of that, experience true freedom. Because, like you said, with this collective yes, with every thought, every interaction, every answer, do it for yourself, all of this stuff has a, 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 a monument impact on freedom. You know what I mean? Every time I leave the house and I'm driving in Colorado, like that could be the last time I'm driving. That could be the last time I'm breathing. So what am I going to do right now? I'm on the phone call with you. This could be the last time I'm alive. So I got to bear my soul. So if someone's listening, they can get something that can push this, this this message even further. It's like, it's very difficult at times to be a person of color, but- like it's it's such a amazing thing. it's so it's so i I just that both of you guys brought something up in me, and i I, I appreciate that,
0: wow, yeah, oh, that's so powerful. And one thing i I wanted to say earlier, but you bring it up again is this idea of like our impermanence, our mortality, you know, and the reality is, Courtney, like none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. but white supremacy. One of the one of the spells cast, you know, a part of the illusion is the immortality, like, you know, that I'm gonna live forever. You know, I, a white, you know, white white supremacist delusion, which Sony Renee Taylor, that's how she frames it, which I think is brilliant because, and even I've even heard of another term, and I I cannot remember the person, but I'll make sure to um provide it for the notes, but a white inferiority complex.
2: Uh-huh. I've heard of that kicked around too. Yeah,
0: but this whole idea of like this delusion, right? This like unhinged dream, as you're saying. And part of that is this idea of safety, right? That your white skin provides you with a a a bodily protection above that of other people. And you know, part of that is created. You know, you think of anything from police violence to black and brown people oftentimes being sent on the front lines of, of wars, as opposed to you know being able to come up the ranks and be you know more office cushy positions. To I mean, there's so many. You think of like healthcare. I mean, all these ways in which the this this structure has created safety for one group over another, but there's still, but now, but yet we are still, the reality is that now the, the most recent numbers show that, that white men are are dying at a younger age than, you know, than they ever have. Yeah. And so there's still this idea of the, the illusion of safety. And um, Sonia Renee Taylor actually talked about this like a week ago, on her i g that you know safety is a construct. Dr. Rosales um Mesa talks about this as well that safety is is an illusion, is like a white supremacist illusion. like we create you know, based on our own decisions, we can navigate the world as best we can. but things happen, you know, people get sick. like I just lost my cousin a few months ago. she was thirty six years old a oh, four year old son, you know, no. like she was diagnosed with cancer in June. She was gone in March. It's just like, and that for me, was like probably coupled with what happened with Dante Wright, which is like, I don't, like you said, I don't know how long, I don't even have to put my body in front of, you know, a row of cops to put myself in harm's way. Exactly, Life is just harmful. (laughs) You know, life is hard. Life is difficult for everyone. White, supremacist delusion convinces white folks that life ought to be less hard for some and more hard for others. And that is not the natural way of life. Life is hard for everybody. None of us are guaranteed. And so we, you know, and so one thing I love about Blackness and Black culture is that, you know, that's an undeniable truth for us. And so I believe what we produce what we create, who we are, you know, our our laughter, our music, <laughs> our yeah. our words, our books, our you know, the way we love is just so amplified because we're like actually living, you know. When
2: you're when you're in touch with that it's impermanent, you live because you're like this is it got to hold on to it. Yeah, and I I feel like I you know I live in. Boulder here, and then there's a very strong Buddhist community here. Um, and I think, you know, for myself, one of the reasons that I was drawn to Buddhism is because it is so in touch with impermanence. That is the core teaching of impermanence. I mean, they do they do sky burials in Tibet, you know, where they take the the body and they chop it up and they watch as vultures come and eat the body as like a core reminder of impermanence and I think that there's a refreshingness um, after you get past the darkness, because it's so jarring. You know, here in in our culture, we put people in boxes and we don't look at the dead body and we tuck them away. You know, it's very like nothing to remind us that this is this is a short lived thing. But I think that a lot of people are drawn to Buddhism because it is such like oh right. The illusion can be lifted, right? We we die. This is you know, this is the inevitable. And th- when we get in touch with our humanity, we become alive naturally. Naturally, yeah. I yeah.
1: I, I really think that um, culture cr- is created by pain, suffering, poverty, all of the things that are supposed to to take you and our. To a place, ironically, creates something that can be is joyful, is celebrated. Um, the whole POC culture is created via resistance, by Resilience through longevity. Like uh, we just recently spoke on this, like why are we still here? You know, why are people of color still here? You know, um, and so when um, a question was asked, and I want to ask you, Courtney, is do you think there's such thing as white culture? Like, Do you think that uh, as as like if, a separate uh,
2: thing from white supremacy culture?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, so just a white person said, I see y'all got black culture. I should have white culture. What do you think about that? Like, what is white culture?
0: I think that's a really interesting question. First of all, I, I want to. Um, culture is shaped by those things, but I think it doesn't have to be. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be because I believe there is white culture, right? Like um, I was talking with a friend and she was like, I'm challenging my my concept of time. You know, this is a black friend. She's like, because I know that, you know, timeliness is a tenet to at least American culture, but it is not, you know, it's not everywhere. <laughs> You know, everyone does not treat time the way Americans treat time. And everyone doesn't. And then when you take it apart even further, white Americans specifically have a way to deal with time that, you know, Mexican Americans, you know, Asian Americans, Black Americans, we are not dealing with time in this way. And And North
2: and South is really different, too. North
0: and South is (laughs) very different. Very different. Very different. And so... There is white culture, but every time, (laughs) every time we try to point it out, it pisses people off. They're like, that's not white culture. That's everybody. And it's like, so how can you have both? You can't be like, I want to have my culture. And then we tell you what your culture is and you're like, that's racist. That's how everybody thinks. But it's not. And that's white supremacist delusion, right? It's like, you know, you think that what you do is universal. Right. But it literally is not, I mean, were were you, no, it was um, a couple days ago, someone was talking about the idea of mistakes and, and failing in mistakes. Right. And, and um, told the story about an interaction that a professor of theirs had with a indigenous chief. Um, This is all happening in Canada. And so when the person talked about mistakes, the indigenous chief said, We don't have a word for that in our language. The word mistake doesn't exist in our language. Like the closest thing to it is learning. So we Mm, would say. So beautiful. You had a learning, (laughs) you know, you made a learning. And so the idea of failure, the idea of mistake, perfectionism, that's all white culture. That doesn't exist in a lot of other spaces and cultures and, or one step further, it might begin to exist after an interaction with white culture, which when you think about how a lot of our cultures are formed are not just, you know, pain and suffering, but colonialism, right? And so foods and, and fabrics and plants and behaviors, practices collide and create, you know, culture. And so it's um, not, I I don't even want to necessarily say bad or good all the time, except when you take a step back and think like, is this actually serving me again from a selfish perspective? Like, is this worth carrying around? Yeah. And, and the question of culture
2: is off always like, how are you how are you pressing this on other people how are you making a demand that in order for another person to have access to whatever resources you have which is power do you have to conform and assimilate which is you know anytime two cultures interact that's going to be the question of the negotiation but given the historical you know context of how white people have decided to use the world and everything that's in it and take advantage and exploit um that that question of of power is always there and i think the default of whiteness is like but this is the norm this is normal this is this is how you do it let me teach you how to do it so you can be professional let me teach you how to do it so you can do this thing and that's that has to be Disrupted so that we can ask that question, is this serving me? I can tell you perfectionism is not serving me. Right. Like we (laughs) we have talked a lot today about the nervous system, I feel like, you know, from the tension that you're the feeling about making different decisions to like, how do I stay safe? How do I, how do I create an illusion so that I can feel like I'm staying safe? And, but then the mechanism. Is not something that feels good, you know. Hyper individualism, perfectionism, all of these like tenets of of white supremacy it doesn't serve me. Yeah,
0: I think of <laughs> pants, pants, pants. <laughs> like yeah. the rest of the world wasn't wearing pants until somebody showed up and they're like stockings and and I and like. I think of the business suit. I know
2: in like the incredibly hot parts of the world. Like I did the Peace Corps for two years in the Pacific. That was you know strong missionary presence, and it is so hot there. And everyone has multiple layers of clothes on. And I'm
0: like, how did this even happen? How did how was this a yes? Like <laughs> yeah. it's like who who decided this is a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, Courtney. We hopped in. Oh no, no
1: no no no. You're good. I love it. I. Emily knows this about me. Everything always comes back to freedom. Every, everything, and so when you're truly free, you're allowed to make mistakes. When you're truly free, you're allowed to may have those learnings. You're allowed to have pleasure. You're allowed to normalize something to make it into a rule, and which you make it into a law. You know, like like you're free. So you you're free enough to have the mental capacity enough and the understanding enough to work it out for the rest of us who. May not be as free as you, you know. And so when if if everybody uh, is around the table is free, now it's like now we're in a conversation. But if you're not around the table, you're not free. I'm making a, I'm making something for you because you're not free. And that's the thing that see that's like when a woman is not around the table in her own life, she be making a million dollars, but she's not free because you would rather. I would rather I can't say anyone else. I would rather make fifteen dollars an hour and have autonomy over my own life versus making three hundred million dollars a year and have to answer to someone else for how I can spend that, how I can dress, how I can, what I can say. it's like those. That's when you get into the world of freedom. And so, as an entrepreneur versus a businessman, you know those are two different paradigms of freedom. You know, you know. And so, as an entrepreneur, you get to say. Cause I'm not hundred percent. I'm not there yet. You know, I'm, I'm 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 walking down the road to entrepreneurship, but I'm still a businessman because I gotta wake up and make moves. But when you're truly an entrepreneur, you can sleep, go on your yacht, be in your robe, and your lifestyle that you've created does not stop. And so if we if we correlate that to DEI work. How can we be free if everyone that is involved in freedom is not around the table? Whether you are enslaved, whether you are part of the white supremacist system, whether you are are the oppressed, if you're not around the table, you're not truly working for freedom, you are superimposing your thoughts, ideals, morals, values on someone which is further suppressing them, even if you feel as though you care about that person. This is why you have to be selfish with freedom.
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, because if, I, yeah. you, if
1: you take, I'm sorry, if you take it in yourself and you say, I love freedom, I need to be f- truly free, so let me love myself, Courtney, what do you think about that? That means Courtney's around the table. Emily, how do you feel about Emily's around the table? How can I say that I want to respect women, but there's no women around the table? <laughs> you know, like that's, so if you talk about DEI work, but your DEI course or your class or your session or your leadership has no people of color, yeah, you just have an illusion of creating pain. You're feeling sorry. You're patronizing, but you're not doing no work.
0: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think of, you know, when you talk about entrepreneurship, like the fastest growing demographic starting their own businesses is black women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that people are like applauding, right? It's like, look at black women doing their thing. But we are... Fucking over, being oppressed in a in a system that does not value us. I mean, every single black woman I run into who's starting something for themselves, including myself, is basically. I mean, basically, you boil down the story, and it is. I'm tired of this shit. (laughs) (laughs) fill fill in whatever industry whatever position i mean everybody from the boardroom to you know flipping burgers they just got to a point where they were just tired of the bullshit they're tired of getting paid less they're tired of having to work harder and more they're tired of being questioned every time they want to take time off they're tired of trying to make the decision about what to do with their kids you know because of all all the issues the structural issues and that situation. They're just, they're tired. We're tired. And so that is, I think Essence Magazine actually wrote an article about this maybe last year or two years ago about like this phenomenon, right? Of all these black and brown women creating businesses in it. But the catalyst is I'm tired of of my gifts. I'm tired of not being free. Exactly what Courtney said. I'm tired of not being free. I would rather... I would rather, like you said, be barely making ends meet, but it's my time, it's my gifts, it's my schedule, it's my values that my work is being built around and upon than basically that same type of life, because that's the reality for a lot of Black women, the same type of struggle under somebody else. Like this idea of struggle versus suffering. Like I, I posted about this a while ago, but this idea of like struggle is a part of life, you know, cause life is hard. You know, we struggle. Like I think about giving birth, you know, Emily, like sh- giving birth is not, there's nothing easy about it. It's, it's a, a bit of a struggle. It's a bit of a struggle. <laughs> well, just a little bit. <laughs> just, just,
1: little bit. Little just a little bit. bit. Just a
0: little a bit. Just a little bit. But suffering is something that happens to someone. So, you, you know, our experiences giving birth, Emily might've been very different. You know, because if you had access, you know, you have white skin, of mm-hmm. course, but if you had access to health insurance, if you were able to go to a hospital or a birthing situation where- if people listened when I said I was in pain. All of those things, you, you know, your your childbirth experience w- had had struggle in it, but one of my childbirth experiences was suffering. It was Ooh. suffering. It was- almost 30 different personnel in my triage room because they didn't have room for me to have a birthing room.
2: Oh my god. It stop. was
0: it was you know them testing me 3 times to see if my water broke even though I came in with my water broken because you know they just wanted to quote unquote make sure it was me have, it was not having anybody back in the room with me in the triage room besides my husband and my doula sitting out with the rest of my family. And my dad had to threaten to sue the hospital. Oh my God. To get in, you know, so there, so there's a difference suffering and struggle, right? Like struggle is just, I was ready for that struggle. I was ready for the struggle of childbirth. I was not ready for the suffering. No, no, I you just needed cool your, that.
2: your cave and to tend to the cave and feel supported. Yeah. This is, you know, that's all oh, that breaks my heart. You know, was, and so, but I that's,
0: mean. that's, you know, when I, Courtney, when you talk about, you know, like life is pain and suffering, like I agree that life can be painful. I don't believe it has to be a suffering. I don't believe that. I, I believe that, you know, the struggle of life is more than enough to <laughs> yeah. to, you know, like think about. I mean, rap was born out of suffering, but it but what would it be if it was just born out of struggle <laughs> like I, what what could be created like what could what could have been like what could you know Baldwin have written if it wasn't just you know if it was su- not suffering but struggle like his brilliance was always there,
1: yeah, you know I- what I
0: mean like it, our brilliance isn't born out of out of suffering. We're born brilliant, you know.
1: I, I agree. I agree. You know, um, who I love. I love debates. You know, I, love, <laughs> I love arguing. I'm not arguing with you. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, like,
0: please, yeah, please. Hold on, oh,
1: because I feel like individuals do their best work when their backs against the wall. Right because you have to be most creative when you have to be creative to live like rap you brought up now if, if if you're sometimes for some people when you're comfortable you rely on the comfort oh that feels good but when you're in pain and you're in suffering like you have to dig a little deeper you feel the emotions of like certain hip-hop artists you know you feel you 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 feel it because they're they they feel like they're fighting for a culture. They're pushing a culture. That's why rap is such a a cultural phenomenon. You had N.W.A. You had E.P.M.D. You had Nas. You had all these people coming up in the struggle, but they were suffering. They were just trying to figure shit out. So it was like, you know what? I got a plan B. So if this rap shit don't work out, I can cool. That may take a little off of like Nas really reading a little harder to 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 to. <laughs> Because you got a plan B, you can fall back on some shit, you know? But if all you got is hip hop and your mama over there, or your your brother or sister locked up and you trying to figure out how to pay the rent, you may read a couple more books. So cause you notice know this rap shit's gonna be the vehicle for you to make some money. So you like, all right, cool, I gotta do it. So that suffering may may, may may give you a little more, uh, like to go out there and get, uh, I I, I can't go to sleep right now. I need two more hours to come with these lyrics. Like N.W.A. was coming through a time where, like, the the police brutality was on all time high. They was suffering, so they they pushed it a little harder versus if crime if they lived in the suburbs and it was all some cool if they were the Beatles, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's a different it's a different. That's what I'm saying. So I agree with you, but it's a caveat to that. Like, I don't know. It's thinking back in my life if hopelessness wasn't a part of my story. If I wouldn't be this passionate and this this warrior-like about people in poverty.
0: Right. I hear because
1: you. I you see because I experienced it firsthand, like living in my car, sleeping, throwing on a white coat, looking out the window at crackheads and like like dudes tying off and like, yo, I'm fighting for those people. So now I gotta go in there, long hair, Jordans on. Just like I'm playing ball, out diagnosing. I gotta play, nah, that diagnosis is wrong because my man in the street needs me to show up. So right now I gotta be a better doctor than you. My fault. Sorry, not sorry about how I'm about to show you up right now. Because my people aren't comfortable. You know, so I went in there with a different type of tenacity and anger, you know, and I didn't know how to harness that, you know what I mean? So as I learned, I learned to do it in love and different way. But when I first came in, like I was an angry doctor, like if it was for the patients, I was all, how you doing, ma'am? Let's talk. But to my colleagues, when you're talking some crazy shit about, like, look, your situation. If I was your OB, I'm like, yo, if you don't bring these, this this woman's husband in here, the, the father, the doula, bring that's, that's, she needs what she needs to get through. Her water's broke. You're not pregnant. She is. Like, patients need that. The, the exploitation that happened with healthcare is real. You know, and so if I if if I wasn't like if I didn't f- firsthand see the, the 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 poverty in our communities, I don't know if I would have went in there with the with the agenda like, yo, fuck your feelings. People dying out here. I really don't give a fuck about how you are feeling about liking me. My patients like me. Mm. That's who I want to like me.
0: Yeah. So, yes, I I mean I absolutely agree with you. I think you know, we with the hand we've been dealt. You know, like what the majority of us have been able to do with that is so it's just so intensely powerful. Like that's something that just still boggles my mind about us collectively. Us is like, you know, it's like you said, like we're still here, but we are. So there is a white culture going back to that. There is a white culture. But what is it? America's culture? It's black. Does that make you know what I mean? And Talk th- about that shit, player. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like I yes. just watched. I mean, and really, the globe, the world's culture, is black in a lot of ways. Like I just watched a video, and it's a group of Korean kids. They wrote this song called DNA, and it. Is ripping It is ripping off Kendrick Lamar. Like, it is. But they're talking about... It's funny. This is a black Twitter moment. Because they're talking about their pride and their Korean heritage. But they look like they went into, like, an and-one store yeah. and just bought everything on the shelf. I mean, they got... <laughs> they have braids. Some of these kids have textured their hair to the point where it looks like they have afros. They are, like, baggy pants. Jordans and they're talking about how much they love being Korean. And it's just like, Wow, this is complex. Yeah, I knew. You
1: yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the
0: story, honestly, I mean, this is a, a kind of a little bit of a tangent. I won't go long, but even the story of Korean fried chicken is a really interesting story. I'll find the article for you. But it was essentially black soldiers, troops during um the Korean War and World War II. A lot some of them stayed. And And um, created like chicken, chicken restaurants, like soul food restaurants in Korea. Like, you know, it wasn't a part of Korean culture to fry and fry a piece of chicken and cover (laughs) it with sauce until black, you know, black soldiers were there during the war they decided to say to set up shop and they're like shit this is good like yeah. you're like your fried chicken and my you know exo sauce or whatever not exo that's chinese but um but our like korean barbecue sauce that's a good combo that's the birth of that chicken you know that, the korean wow. fried chicken it wow. is and so our culture is like what we've been able to make It's like a combustion engine or something. It's like you pour like all this heat and like and and the engine of our of our what we what we see is great, like great art, great music, you know, a lot of that is born out of the black experience. I I and it still just boggles my mind how that happened. But I do also believe, Courtney, (laughs) when you because you said something very specific. You said when I first kind of came in, I came in angry. And I had to learn. I had to. I want to venture to say heal, right? Yes, great. You know, you had to heal because you couldn't just come out of. You couldn't really necessarily work out of that suffering forever. The suffering no. is going to happen around you. You can't. You there's. You, you know, you are fighting against that, but that's going to take time. But what you do have complete control over is, is the internal you know yeah
1: I couldn't work with I I, I couldn't work with Emily if I was still you know like that you know because I was I was angry you know Um, because I was in pain so you're right 100% yeah
0: so there is an element where like we the healing like healed black people healed black people it hits different Mm
1: mm-hmm it does
0: oh man so so this
2: conversation is the first piece of your course. I mean, (laughs) such an important, (laughs) such an important, I think this is like, I, I, somewhere in your writing, you wrote like that white people have to feel this in their bones, right? They have to come in contact with what white supremacy culture does to everyone. And, And I think part of the conversation is like the beauty of of starting to see other cultures, starting to see, you know, to learn, like there are paradigms where mistakes and perfectionism don't exist like this, where it isn't either or thinking, there's nuance, and there's holding of nuance. And then there's a respect for elders. I mean, there's so much beauty in, in kind of breaking apart that illusion that has been so dominant for 500, 600, however many years. So I, as we wrap up, I just want to just ask you for a second to like speak about your course, um, you know, where it goes from this conversation and then, um, you know, how people can find you and, and, and sign up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so no better do better. The legacy of white allyship, the workshop is happening on June 25th and 26th. It is essentially six 45-minute sessions over two days. And and we do, we go, we go into how white supremacy fucks us all. Of course, we kind of lay that foundation. And then from there, we do talk about, you know, white identifying disruptors. And we talk about that table that you were talking about, that, you know, that white folks have been always... um Disturbed by, <laughs> disturbed by oppression. They've, they've experienced oppression. Been a, they've definitely been disturbed by um, oppression, especially of their Black siblings and have have done something about it. And so we're going to talk about that, what that looks like. Um, some additions this time around, though, is we're going to look at where white allyship goes wrong. We're going to look at a couple examples of folks who, who um, tried and failed. Are going to learn from their experience. We're going to learn from their lives. Um, and we're also, I'm bringing in my incredible friend, Kay Thomas, and, um, who is a trauma therapist. And they're going to talk about the inter intersection of neurobiology of trauma and allyship and how for white folks in particular, how do you get past or how do you Kind of heal, begin to heal from your own traumas and understanding how your traumas interact with black folks that come into your life. And, and, you know, when they attempt to course correct, when they, when they come in and, you know, that whole white tears phenomenon, like we're really going to break that down and talk about what that actually is. Because a lot of people are like, Oh, well, it's just, you know, it's manipulative. And from a, from a trauma informed background, not always not always. And so we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to create affirmations from learning about white identifying allies, learning from their lives so folks can walk away with some things to kind of speak over their lives and and, and their journeys to help them become the type of ally they want to be. We're going to kind of just hit it from every angle we can over those two days. It's going to be a little bit intense, I think. But also, I try to make it very enjoyable because I feel like creating that that positive, enjoyable atmosphere is what helps people really kind of open up, become vulnerable. Yes, and learn and really internalize the information. So um, you can find us, um, you can find me at um, CourtneyNapier.com. Um anything about Black Oak Society at Black, uh, black Oak society.com. The Eventbrite page for the No Better Do Better is um, No Better Do Better Workshop dot com. It's also on my social media, my um Instagram. Yeah, which is at has dot words. And um, yeah, I I really I really hope you join. It's gonna be a really great time, a nice, a really beautiful, intimate time for us to just be vulnerable and be be our our full selves, and um, that's what's it gonna sounds, create change.
2: It sounds like true, you know we started this conversation by like inviting our ancestors into the room, and I think it, that course kind of sounds like let's refocus and not just be in this mess of people, but like, let's focus on specific white ancestors who I can call upon for support and call upon to feel like, Oh, that person would be proud, you know, and that legacy, um, which isn't that narrative is not alive um, in my world. So y'all have
0: folks to be proud of and you need to know who they are. They are like, like, me and Courtney's ancestors there and waiting, waiting, you know, to to strengthen you, the gifts that you have, the the tender heart that you have, Emily, towards, you know, or understanding rather not just a tender heart, but understanding that your liberation is tied to Courtney's liberation, tied to my liberation. You receive that from heritage your heritage you know it might not be like your particular ancestor but just like Audre Lorde isn't my particular ancestor she is my ancestor in the work of collective liberation like you have ancestors in the work of collective liberation and they have brought you to this space and so I'm thankful to them and I know you are too. And and we're just gonna let y'all meet. We're gonna just create a little room and, and everybody's gonna be able to meet each other and introduce and, and and begin that relationship. So that's awesome.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Oh,
0: thank you so much for having me. Y'all are amazing. Humanized Podcast is this is just the beginning. Just the Aww. beginning.
1: Oh man, don't make me cry. <laughs> no a black man can't cry. Oh. <laughs> Don't do be like that, Courtney. <laughs> oh, <laughs> goodness, no, nah, 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 appreciate you. Thank you so much for being on. Um, wow, really, so much to think about, man. And um, I really appreciate you. I'm glad because when I saw somebody named Courtney Dot has, I was like, who? Courtney has words. Who is this? You know what I mean? So that, that was that was you. I'm glad and I'm, I'm honored to um now be connected and um. Let's, let's do it, man. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank y'all.
0: Thank y'all.
2: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast.
1: Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.